0: Our scripture reading today is from Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles, surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you, that is, the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly. In reading this then, you will be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. This is the mystery. This mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise in Christ Jesus. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God, who created all things. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus, our Lord in him and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you therefore not to be discouraged because of my sufferings for you, which are your glory. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Well, good morning. We are uh, continuing our book uh, study of Ephesians this summer. And I was thinking uh, this week, how many customer loyalty programs are you in? You know what I'm talking about? You got a card for like all these different companies. Like, have you noticed how many you're in? Like, I thought about this. There's customer loyalty, and if I'm really a loyal customer, how come I have a Safeway card and a Fred Meyer card? Am I, which one am I loyal to, right? How many people have Alaskan Airlines? program, and Southwest, that's me, I have Alaska and Southwest, uh, what else, Hilton and Marriott, right, you've got all these, any, what are some others I'm missing, what are some of the reward programs that you have dual loyalty in, or maybe triple loyalty in, anybody want to, what's that, Alamo, rental car, right, do you, who's the, who else do you work with, Avis, Hertz, also oh, you've got like multiple loyalties to multiple companies, right. Anybody else? What's that? Home Depot, Home Depot, Lowe's, what else? I heard something else over here. No, I didn't, all right, sorry. My hearing's going, in old age. So think about this, is that we think about customer loyalty and here's, here, maybe you didn't know this, maybe you already knew this, do you know that customer loyalty programs do not create loyalty? Did you know that? They've actually proven it for the past 20 years. They've been using these loyalty programs for 20 years, over 20 years and Harvard Business Review did a review of them and said, look, this doesn't work. This doesn't create more customer loyalty. So why do we keep doing them? You know why we do, right? Because customer loyalty programs actually help us spend more money. And so it's good for the company because they'll find ways to get us to spend more money through their company loyalty programs, but we're really not really that loyal, are we? I thought about this. You know, What does loyalty and commitment look like today? Like, I mean, how many people have a hard time signing a two-year contract with your cell phone company? Like, you look at that, oh, man, that's a long-term commitment, right? Two years, right? So we have this, we want commitment, we want loyalty, (laughs) as long as it's convenient for us, as long as it's comfortable for us, as long as it works for who? Us. So commitment, I'm, I'm good at being committed when it works for me. I'm good at being loyal when it works for me. But then we get this guy named Paul, who wrote the letter of Ephesians? If you look at this letter, notice the first verse we read to. Now we—he's been talking the first couple chapters. If you remember, he's been talking about Jewish and to Jewish and Gentile believers, and he's been setting up the first three chapters. They're setting up the second three chapters of application. He's talking about the talk, and then he's going to talk about the walk. And so now he's leading up to a prayer in this section of chapter three. But notice how he starts out this chapter, this very first verse. What does he say? He says, "For this reason, I." Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for the sake of you Gentiles. He refers to himself as what? A prisoner. How many people think? We we sing a a great hymn in the church, an older hymn called, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. You remember that song? What a Friend We Have. I'm not going to sing it, sorry. Nobody sings, I'm a prisoner in Jesus, right? Nobody refers to Jesus as, I'm being a prisoner to them, right? But that's loyalty, that's commitment, right? Paul is saying, I'm so committed, I'm so loyal to Christ, I consider myself bound and captured by Christ, that I am a prisoner of Christ. That's a long-term commitment. That's a hard commitment. Now, you might think, well, what does this mean? For Paul, it meant a lot of things when it came to commitment. I'm gonna give you, real quickly, top 10 things that happened because of Paul's ministry. You ready for this? The top 10 things that happened because of Paul's ministry. Number 10, he was, and this is all in the book of Acts, he was expelled from Antioch because he preached the gospel to them. In uh, number nine, he was almost stoned in a city called Iconium because of his message. In number eight, he was stoned and considered dead, almost dead in Lystra. Number seven, he was imprisoned and put in prison in Philippi for his message. In number, in number six, he created a mob riot in Thessalonica as a result of his preaching. Number five, he had, there was another attempted mob riot in Berea. Number four, he put up with verbal and physical abuse in Corinth. In fact, they dragged out the synagogue leader where he preached and beat that synagogue leader in that town of Corinth. Number three, he rioted again again in Ephesus, which is the letter we're reading about. There was a riot in the theater of Ephesus. Number two, he was in prison and almost killed in Jerusalem until he threw up his citizenship card, Roman citizenship card, and said, whoa, 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 don't kill me. And then, number one, on his way to, uh, to Rome, he was shipwrecked, then in imprisoned in Rome, and finally executed there. How do you feel about preaching the gospel now? What enabled him to stay that commitment? That's a sign. Those are signs of commitment and loyalty to Christ, right? And that starts with him considering himself loyal to Christ, committed to Christ, bound to Christ, prisoner of Christ, right? And so that's part of that commitment, and, he's, and what he's doing, the point is, is that he's not throwing in the towel. He's not giving up. He's not quitting. How often do you feel like quitting? How often do you feel like giving up? How often do you think about throwing in the towel? When it comes to anything, right? But Paul is exemplary. And I think why we have his letters and why we have his message is because of this level of commitment that he had this commitment to the gospel of Jesus Christ, He was a prisoner. He wasn't just loyal, he wasn't just committed, he was bound to it because of his calling. Now, how did he do that? How did he stick to it? How did he never give up? How did he stay that committed? Well, he says that in the letter. We go fast forward a little bit to verse eight. He says, this grace was given me. He says that this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ. What he is saying is that I do this because of all the grace that has been given to me. (laughs) All the ways that God has loved me. I am committed to Christ in response to God's love and grace in my life. And so that has increased his level of commitment because we have to remember that Paul once hated Christians. He was a persecutor of Christians. He was the one doing the stoning. Until God changed his heart, until he encountered Christ, to encounter God's grace. Then God changed him, and then he became a different person. He began to preach this gospel of grace where once he was stoning people for this same message. And here's the thing this is not in the scripture, but I came to this conclusion that what kept Paul going was this grace, because it is grace that never runs out so that you and I will never give up. Grace never runs out so we never give up. Notice that Paul says it's boundless riches, right? He doesn't say you get so much <laughs> and then we're done, right? You, 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 can, oh, you can never over withdraw from this bank account of grace. You can never out sin the grace of God. You can never outdo the grace of God. You can never out uh, uh, extend it or overuse it or under it. Now it doesn't mean that we should push the limits and do whatever we want, that's not, Paul says that somewhere else, but what he's saying is that this is boundless grace. It is is unsearchable, uncomprehensible grace that is always available to us, and that's what will keep us going. We need to know that God has grace for us even when we feel like giving up, even when we feel like stopping. See, Paul is drawing his power from there, If you don't believe me, grace is necessary for commitment, and I think it is. I think extending grace, knowing grace, having grace is important to keeping our commitments. Let me ask this question. Actually, let me take you to a wedding. We heard a little bit about weddings last week, but I want to take you to a wedding. I want to take you to the reception of the wedding. And I've been to a lot of weddings. And can I just share a pet peeve with you this morning? This is my pet peeve. Celebrate good times is not a wedding reception song I care for anymore. (laughs) If I hear, celebrate good time, if I hear that one more time at a wedding reception, I think I'm gonna scream no, I'm just kidding. (laughs) But there's something else that happens at a wedding reception that I often see, it doesn't happen to everyone, but I often see is that they ask everybody to come out to the dance floor, all the married couples to the dance floor. And then they say, all right, everybody who's been married a year or less, leave the dance floor, and so the bride and groom, they are the first ones to go, right, because they just got married. And they say, everybody married five years or less, leave the dance floor, 10 years or less, leave the dance floor, 25 years or less, leave the dance floor, 50 years or less, leave the dance floor, right? So I thought we'd do that here in church today. Everybody come down here, let's start, we're gonna. You think I'm, no, I'm just kidding, I am kidding. But let's, let's, do, let's take a poll. I'm not gonna go through all the years, but who here Married couple has been married. I'm going to start at 60 years. Anybody been married more than 60? I know we have some people who have been married more than 60 years here. Raise your hands. 60 years, more than 60, more than 60, more than 60, more than 60. Anybody more than 70? Can I see a hand for more than 70? All right, all right. So we're somewhere between 60 and 70. 65, more than 65. More than 65? Going once, going twice. No, more than 64, 63. How, m- how long, David? 65, yeah, you're there, you're there, you're counting, right? Give them a hand, right? Are you close? 57. 57? Oh, I put you 58. 58, right, isn't that great? Now, David, or maybe I should ask your wife this question how many times in your marriage in 65 years have you had to extend grace to each other? Every day, day. yeah, good answer. Now do you believe me that grace is required for commitment? To stay committed to someone, to stay committed to anything requires grace, That's why God is so committed to us. That's why God loves us so much is because God is steadfast in God's grace towards us because of God's commitment to us. That's why God keeps up with us. That's why God puts up with us. That's why God is patient with us. That's why God wishes that none would perish because of grace and love and commitment that God has for us. And God is saying, that's the kind of commitment I want in your life. And so we see that in Paul's life. The other thing that Paul is doing, he's not only revealing God's grace and commitment as a prisoner, and that God's grace is balanced, he's also revealing a mystery. And he's basically saying it's not a mystery anymore, it's this, that God, he's revealing God's plan to include the Gentiles in the promises of, 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 Jewish, of Israel. The promise of Abraham to be co-heirs in the inheritance of the people of God, to become members of the same body, to include them in the promises of God through Christ as well. And so there's this inclusion of the Gentiles. Now, I want you to think about this. Gentiles means other nations, not just like Greeks. So that means anybody of another nation is included in Christ in the family of God. We've talked a little bit earlier about being adopted in the family of God. So he's saying that this this new mystery that's always been a part of God's plan is that the inclusion of all the nations. I stumbled across this quote from FF Bruce this week who's a biblical scholar, he does a lot around the life of Paul and he says this, the church appears as God's pilot scheme for the reconciled universe of the future that we're the pilot scheme. We're the, we're the beta version of what God is doing, of God's plan. The church is to be the beta version, the pilot scheme of this inclusion, of this reconciliation. If you look at this, you think, well, what is that? Well, if you look in Revelation 7, 9, it says this. After this, I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb. What? Every Nation, tribe, people, and language. That's the future that God is shooting for. That's the plan that God has. That's where God is going. And you and I in the church are to be working that pilot scheme. We're to actually be starting that process. We're actually supposed to be revealing that to in our church body and in the way we live our lives. You know, now we have to admit the church hasn't always done a good job of that. The church has not always done a good job of including other nations. And I've always heard growing up, you know, that the church is the most segregated place on Sunday morning. Now we have to admit that. At the same time, I think about this and I think, I don't think I was ever taught anything different than what's taught right here in the scripture about all the people of God coming together. That We are not a people of many races, we're actually one human race. And I remember being taught as a small child, this. That the church, for me, has always taught me this. It's not that the church has ever diverged from this teaching in my, life, in my own personal life. I've always heard this, and it actually goes back to a song that I was taught in my early childhood. Maybe some of you know it, we don't sing it anymore because it's not politically correct anymore. It's not, but, but I will remind you of what it says. This is the song that we, I was taught, I don't know, does this that sound familiar to you, Jesus Loves? the little children, all the children of the world. This is where it gets a little dicey politically. Black and yellow, red and white, they're all precious in his sight. Jesus loves the little children of the world. I think about that from a very small age, what was I being taught by the church? (laughs) The biblical principle is there, isn't it? It's, It's sound, you can get hung up on the semantics, but. The principle is there, is it not? That all people matter to God, regardless of their race, regardless of their ethnicity, regardless of their background. All people matter to God, and they are all welcomed and included in God's family. One human race, not multiple races. This is God's future. And are we embracing it? Are we living it? I don't think it's the teaching that's been the problem in the church. I've always been taught this. It's that we don't always apply it. It's the lack of application. And so the church can teach all kinds of, teach us all kinds of wonderful things but until we actually apply it in our lives, it doesn't take root, it doesn't make a difference. You know, the Bible is like sunscreen. It only works when applied. If you take nothing home with you today, take that one. But that's it, right? It won't work unless it's applied. Now, fast forward, I I was, when we were moving, uh, we were going, we were purging through all our stuff and downsizing and I've got a book box, a box of books, a box of yearbooks. And I was flipping through my high school yearbook and there's a picture of me in the lunchroom with another person, his name was Ravinder Kapoor. And Ravinder and I Kapoor are having lunch Now, I didn't know it until I saw that picture. I didn't think about it until I saw that picture years later. Ravinder was the only kid from India in my entire high school. We had one, I grew up in a rural white community that was becoming suburban. Ravinder was part of that suburban movement in our community. He moved in, there was one kid from India and one African-American student in our entire high school, or sorry, in my entire class in high school. And I look back at that picture and I was like, why was I the one sitting with Ravender? There was nobody else with us in the picture. And I'm not pointing out anything. I think, here's my thought, I never thought Ravender was different than me. I never thought Ravender was anybody different than me. I never saw him as other. And I wonder, in my own spirit, if the church taught me that. I, I certainly think my parents taught me that, but I think, did the church, did that song that I sang when I was four and five and six years old, did the church's teaching start to rewire my brain when I was developed, in those developing years to look at people differently? And so whereas the church has never been you know, out there talking and addressing systemic racism, I would say to you the church has been teaching me to love everybody, to include everybody. That's what the church has taught me my whole life. So that's part of it. And Paul is saying that's what's going on. Now notice that what Paul says about this, he says his intent was that now, verse 10, through the church the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. So God's intent, it says, was that through us, the church, Big C Church, not just First Free Methodist Church, that the intent was that we would reveal this wisdom, this mystery, this wisdom, to who? To the rulers and the authorities and the powers around us. The spirit of this age. We learned about that in the first two chapters. There's this spirit of the age that's at work among us and in our rulers and powers, and we're actually supposed to be revealing this wisdom to those powers and to those rulers and to those authorities of our age. And not only in the spiritual, this could be interpreted in the spiritual realm, but it also could be interpreted on our earthly level as well. That there are rulers and powers and authorities at work in our age, in our day, that we need to reveal this wisdom to. Now, I have discovered there's one thing that's not working in our culture when it comes to addressing power and authorities and, and the spirit of our age. That if our role is to reveal wisdom and truth As the church, I have found one thing that doesn't work. You wanna know what it is? Ranting. We are in the age of the rant. Have you noticed that? You know, someone will videotape themselves ranting about something, you know, about some problem or some complaint, and then they rant about it on their cell phone, on their iPhone, and then they post it on social media, and that's gonna solve our problems. I've yet to see that work. I have, I, in fact, I don't know that God is a God of the rant. You know I don't see and you can correct me, you can challenge me on this I don't see God ranting in Scripture. I see God disappointed in Scripture. I see God upset in Scripture. I see God a upset that people sin and are broken, and I think God looks at it and goes, "That's not right." But I don't think that God rants. How many of us rant? Maybe not on social media. Maybe when we're in the car. Or maybe when we're at home by ourselves, we just start to rant about things, right? And ranting never really solved anything, but what what Paul is saying is that our job is not to rant. It's actually to reveal truth and wisdom to the rest of the world, to the spirit of the age, to the powers and authorities. You know, I think a great biblical example of this is Nathan. Nathan had to go talk to King David after he had an affair with Bathsheba. And Nathan went in to talk to David. One, we have to remember he had opportunity, he had access to power. So that was something. So God had put him in David's life, I think for this very part of this is the reason. But when Nathan goes into David, he doesn't go to David and rant. He goes and he tells him a story that does what? Reveals truth. Reveals wisdom about what David had done. And so it says he actually rebukes David, but he doesn't go in and like go into David and say, David, you're a jerk. You're an, you know, he doesn't call David names, he doesn't like go into David and say it's because he's trying to speak wisdom and truth to power. And so he tells a story that reveals to David truth that reveals to David wisdom, and David goes, oh my, I am that person, right? But it's interesting because in the scripture, you know what David's problem was? Not just adultery. The problem in the scripture says not not that he committed adultery, not that he committed the sexual sin, that was not his problem. His problem was this. It says in the text that he despised the word of the Lord. That's what it says, go back and read it. He despised the word of the Lord. And when he despised the word of the Lord, he shut himself off to the wisdom of God. And so I think about that, that we need more Nathans. We need to be, the church needs to be the Nathan in the world, needs to be the one that speaks wisdom and truth to the world and to the spirit of the age and says, doesn't go and rant at the world, but just reveals God's truth and wisdom to the world. But that's the church. What about you? What about you this morning? What is it? What is that God-given purpose? What is the God-given the purpose that God has given you that will require boundless grace for you that you could give your life to. That you could commit yourself to. What does that look like? Because again, commitment and the ability to be committed to something in this world, to making a difference in this world, to preaching grace, to preaching the gospel message, whatever it may be that God has put on your heart, it is gonna require boundless grace from God because it's gonna be hard. What is it that God's calling you to do? And that doesn't mean you're gonna need to be a missionary or a pastor but I imagine there's something that where you feel like giving up. I bet you there's a place in your life where you feel like throwing in the towel and you're saying to God, God, I need grace. Paul was said, God said to Paul one time, my grace is sufficient for you in your weakness. Now, I thought about this and I ran into Adrian Myers this week in the research librarian and she shared with me a great story that I wanna share with you this morning. There was a guy named Jake DeShazer who was uh, part of the Doolittle raid on Japan. Uh, Jake was on the, bomb, the bombardier for one of the bombers that they flew off an aircraft carrier in the sp- Pacific and they flew and they bombed Tokyo and some other towns in Japan and then they flew all the way to China because they could, didn't have enough fuel to come back to the, the aircraft carrier. This was in response to the bombing of Pearl Harbor. This was a secret plan that they had come up with, the Doolittle Raid. And Jake was on one of those bombers. And his his plane actually ran out of fuel over China and he had to bail out. He had to parachute out over China. And in that process, he he says he landed on a graveyard, in the middle of a graveyard in China. He said he was hugging the tombstone of a Chinaman and he landed and he actually fractured some ribs in the process, then he was all by himself. Now, the Japanese army still occupied parts of China, and so he started to wander through China looking to to get back to to his his guys and back to the US, and he was hoping he'd run into Chinese troops so the Chinese troops would help him. So he saw some guys in uniform, but one of the things the US government and the US army did not train him to know the difference between was a Japanese uniform and a Chinaman uniform. So he goes and he he goes up to a group of soldiers and they are pretty calm about it. So he thinks, oh, they must be Chinese. Turns out they were Japanese soldiers. So they capture him, they put him in a POW camp. And in that POW camp, he was put in solitary confinement for most of his time there. So he spent most of his time in solitary confinement. And then as he was in there, he began to loathe and hate his captors. He, he, he says that he had this hatred for the Japanese, these people, this other culture, this other race, this other nation, that had bombed his nation and now was confining him and beating him and cruel to him and his friends and his fellow soldiers. He was angry. He was upset. He was probably ranting a lot. But then, during his solitary confinement he was able to read the Bible for three weeks. He had three weeks, he had three weeks and three weeks only to read the Bible and he read it through over and over again in those three weeks. He says he read through the prophets six times. He says it was through one of his readings that he came into Romans 9. and at that moment when he read Romans 10, nine, he confessed and believed in Jesus Christ. He gave his life to Christ in that solitary cell as he read the word of God instead of despising it, and up to that point, he had despised the word of God, he had been a skeptic, he didn't believe it, he had ignored it. But now in this moment, here's what he said in his own words, he says, God had given me new spiritual eyes that when I looked at the Japanese officers and guards who had starved and beaten me and my companions so cruelly, I found bitter hatred for them changed to loving pity. Hatred changed to love because of Christ, because of grace because of God's boundless, unsearchable grace that changes us. And I think we have to experience this boundless grace to extend it. Later on, when he got home from the POW camp, he wrote his family a letter on his way home, and he said this. He said, I wanna go to missionary school and learn how to preach to the Japanese. That's what he wrote. He says, I want to go back to the people I used to hate and I want to share God's message of salvation with them. Guess where he went to school? Seattle Pacific College. You can see his bust in the library on one of the stairwells. But he is, he is honored there, memorialized there but he went to Seattle school, college, and then he became a missionary in Japan the rest of his life. Just like Paul. Did you know that God's in the life-changing business? And it's all because of grace. Let's pray together. God, we thank you that your grace is abundant to us, poured out for us, rich for us, and that God, your, your grace is a grace that changes us from a people who are ranting and hating and upset and frustrated and anger and bitter. But your grace reveals to us that we're loved, that we matter, and that other people are loved and that other people matter regardless of what they look like. And so God, we pray that your ch- grace would change us that it would transform our hearts and our minds, the way we think and the way we act and the way we behave, that your grace would change us from the inside out so that others that we meet would see that grace and respond to that grace and love in our lives that we extend to them so that we can be committed to loving people just like you're committed to loving people. And you sent your son into this world to love us, to show us this way of of giving yourself away, of giving yourself for others, and he laid down his life for his friends, those that he loved, those that mattered. And he laid down his life for all of us in the whole world because we all mattered. And so God, we come to this table of grace this morning reminded of your love and grace in Jesus Christ. We pray that you'd pour out your Holy Spirit on us gathered here and upon these gifts of bread and cup that as we come and partake of this, that we would truly realize and know that your grace for us is boundless riches in Christ. So pour out your spirit on us today. And we pray together as you've taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.